Welcome to Surgical Society's Day in the Life podcast. I am Poppy. I'm Amisha. And we're going to take you through a day in the life of numerous healthcare workers. We hope to give you an idea of what a career in healthcare is like from a range of perspectives. And we'll give you tips on applying to medicine, discuss important topics and hopefully inspire you to pursue a career in medicine. Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of A Day in the Life. Today we have Dr. Prasanna Surya Kumaran, a robotic surgeon and a urological surgeon. It's such a pleasure to have you on today. Today, um, Would you like to start by introducing yourself and the journey you took into being a consultant with their own practice now? Yeah, so thank you so much, Amisha, for the uh, invitation and it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I think this is my third ever sp- podcast now, so I'm Starting to get the hang of it, I think. Um, yes, yeah, so my name is uh, Dr. Surya Kumar, or PS, my initials, which is what everyone calls me. Um, I'm a consultant urologist in London at various hospitals uh, in London. Um, in terms of my journey to becoming a consultant, um, I went to medical school. I, we all have to. Uh, went to Nottingham. Um, I'm from, from London. I went to Nottingham for medical school, did my house jobs there. Then came down to London, became an anatomy demonstrator at Guy's, King's and St. Thomas's GKT Medical School uh, and did a at King's. Then got on a surgical rotation, worked with the first black president of the Royal College of Surgeons of England, uh, which is Professor Bernie Ribeiro. Or I think it's, uh, yeah, Sir Professor Bernie Ribeiro. I don't know. He's got a number of different titles now uh, since I worked for him. Uh, but he was a, a proper old generalist type uh, surgeon. So as well as doing general colorectal surgery, he did thyroids, he did urology, he did all sorts of things, which in these days we, you know, we can't do that huge breath, but I really enjoyed the urology side of it. Uh, and then I did a urology PhD in Guildford in prostate cancer and then became a urology registrar again in the South, uh, Thames rotation, finished that, went to New York on fellowships. I went and worked at Cornell for uh, a year and a half. Uh, on fellowship and then went to Stockholm to the Karolinska in, in uh, Sweden uh, on fellowship for another six months and then got a consultant job in Oxford to be an academic consultant where I was a University of Oxford employee uh, and then I moved from Oxford uh, to London in 2017 to UCL and UCLH uh, to become a consultant here uh, and this is where I am. So that seems like that's such an amazing journey. And that seems like a lot of big decisions that you had to make, moving countries multiple times. So how did you <laughs> feel? Yeah. How did you make all of those such like big decisions at quite early stages in your career? Yeah. So I went, you know, decided to go to Nottingham because I wanted to get a little bit away from London at that time. London medical schools were all kind of merging together and, and it wasn't you know, necessarily the most consistent place to go. Uh, and uh, I really like Nottingham, so I, I went there. But then, of course, you know, as we all do, we all want to come back a bit closer to what we know and, and closer to home. So because I grew up in, in South London, I, I came back to London afterwards. I always was interested in surgery because I really enjoyed anatomy at medical school. In those days, I think it's different nowadays, but in those days we used to have dead bodies and we used to cut them up and stuff. Um, so I really enjoyed that and I therefore decided I wanted to be an anatomy demonstrator as well because those guys seemed to have a lot of fun when, when I was a medical student. Um, so I decided to do that at GKT. And then, um, as I say, I worked for Bernie Ribeiro 
on a surgical rotation. And although I really enjoyed the general surgery, it was the urology parts of his job that I really enjoyed. Um, and so I did uh, decide I want to do urology. Uh, and because I was fairly academic in the sense I was quite good at writing papers and, and you know, presenting and stuff, I, I, I thought I'd do a PhD. Um, and so I did a PhD uh, in prostate cancer. It wasn't, I didn't necessarily want to do it in prostate cancer because I didn't know enough about it at the time, but, but I wanted to do it in something urology-wise. So I decided that, and the opportunity came that it was in prostate cancer, so I did that. Uh, and then... While I was on a training rotation, um, robotics was becoming more and more the in thing. And so I decided that uh, I'd go off to learn to do that really well. Um, and at that time, there weren't so many places in the UK that had lots of skilled robotic surgeons and lots of skill centers. So it was good to go abroad for that. Uh, and I always I liked the idea of going to the United States uh, to go abroad to do that. Um, so... Um, I decided to go there. Uh, I spoke to my training program director and he recommended going to this guy in New York, which is the first, um, you know, he was involved in the very first robotic uh, prostate cancer surgery in the world. So it seemed like a very experienced person to go to. Uh, so I went and interviewed there um, and luckily I got that job. So I went there and then actually I was planned to stay there for two years, full two years of my fellowship, but for personal reasons, um, my wife wanted to come back um, to London. Uh, and so therefore I thought traveling from New York to London would be pretty tricky. So I then kind of transferred the last six months of my fellowship to the Canon School in Sweden, because uh, I knew one of the surgeons there pretty well. Um, so it's that. And then because I was an academic, the Nuffield Department of Surgery professor um, of surgery rang me up and said, would I like to get an academic job uh, when I finished all of that? Uh, in Oxford. Uh, of course, Oxford is a, is a great place for academic uh, surgery. So I said yes to that. So then we went to Oxford. Uh, and then uh, my mum got sick with advanced ovarian cancer. And I thought, well, this is a good time to come back to London. So I then got a job at UCLH. So it's a kind of culmination of opportunities leading to opportunities, like intermixed with like just how life goes, I guess. Yes. I think that's right. I mean, I think the, the, the big break was doing robotic surgery in New York because that guy has a very competitive fellowship and generally always goes to Americans. And in fact, the other guy he interviewed with me was this big shot, um, you know, really kind of top of the class uh, surgical trainee from Harvard. And certainly not someone that was pretty middle of the road at Nottingham wasn't, was, you know, wasn't necessarily at that same level, but he, I still got the job. The reason I got the job is because my training program director uh, rang him up and said to him, I've known you for 25 years. We've known, you know, we've known each other since we we're in India together at medical school or whatever it was that they were at together for 25 years. And in those 25 years, I have never recommended anybody for fellowship with you. And I'm recommending PS. So in 25 years, this is the one person that I want you to take. And so that's a, very good recommendation, right? So, um, so that's I think that was the kind of big break that then set me on the road to becoming a robotic surgeon, and then that you know working in the best place for it, large Ivy League university, you know, with with a well-known, world-famous surgeon in my field, and that really set up the rest of my uh, career going forward. That's really interesting because I think as medical students, we don't really see the impact of 
like networking we see that as something more finance students do or other students do so yes. making an impression counts then at medical yes school. i think that's i think that's one of the downsides of what's happened over the last couple of decades in medical schools and uh, training is that you've kind of lost that firm structure of training and you kind of move from one special to another and you never really get the same relationship and rapport with your consultants for example as perhaps we did when we were junior uh, when we were uh, medical students or junior doctors uh, and that I think is really important because at the end of the day people buy from people people sell to people people recommend people right so you know you know there are going to be tons of people that go to the same university as you there are going to be tons of people that get the same degree at then at you know at the end of the day as you there are going to be tons of people that are members of the surgical society or write the odd paper or there so actually what differentiates one person from another is that is that rapport and that relationship uh, to some extent. And that, you know, if somebody picks up the phone and said to me, I've got this great fellow from wherever, Brazil, let's say, who I've known because I did fellowship with that person before he became a well-famous, a world-famous consultant 20 years ago, not quite 20 years ago, 10, 15 years ago for me, then then of course I would listen to that, right? So, so in that same way, I think that's what is really important to try and make throughout your career. It's it's more than just about saying, oh, I need to get these grades, or I need to do this, or I need to do that. Because at the end of the day, the personal touch still matters hugely. Yeah, and I think in an interview, it's all like application. It's very hard to gauge who somebody is and what they actually work like. Whereas yeah. if you build relationships with people and you've seen them work over a period of time, you've got a more accurate view. I yeah, guess. and also we're not, we're not, um, you know, we're not bankers. We don't need to have, you know, IQs of 150, 200 to be great at our jobs. We actually, you know, don't need to be that geeky. We just need to have some all-round skills. So actually necessarily picking the guy that wins all the prizes at Harvard isn't necessarily going to be the person that's going to work hard and do what you want them to do, right? So you need to pick, uh, you, you know, you need that, those softer skills of being able to build relationships and rapports and patient care. You know, no patient has ever asked me which medical school I went to. Not, no patient has ever asked me that. So, but they and they never really asked me whether I've won this prize or that prize. They just judge you based on what kind of a doctor you are to them. So, you know, I might poo-poo this medical school or somebody from that medical school might say, oh, I went to this, you know, but actually none of that actually matters in terms of the quality of the doctor you make. And that is really can only be judged not by um, your CV, but by the people that you treat. Yeah, I think that's a really, really great point, especially for any sixth form students watching who are trying to decide what medical school to go to um, and thinking about names and how it will come off and things that in reality, no one really cares, special patients. Um, yes. And okay, so let's go on to what a day in your life usually looks like. So uh, the days are of course pretty varied, but, but they will revolve around um, two main sets of activities. One will be theater where I'll operate. And I will typically as a robotic prostate cancer surgeon operate on two or three men in a day with prostate cancer who need an operation to cure them or to hope to cure them of their prostate cancer. And that is a robotic operation that I do 
as I say, two or three times in a day. Um, each operation takes, you know, sort of three hours on average. Um, uh, so that will be going to theatre, do maybe do a ward round before to see the patients, consent the patients, go to theatre, set up the case, put the ports in, scrub to put the ports in, then descrub, sit at the console, do the case, rescrub, do the op notes, speak to the, the wife or the relatives, and then do the same thing again two or three times. They will also be intermingled with the operating um, clinic, where I will either see the patients before with the diagnosis to make a decision as to whether surgery is appropriate for them. If so, what the kind of surgery they're going to get is, not just whether it's robotic, but the type of robotic surgery, whether it's going to be a standard prostatectomy or a novel form of robotic surgery called rexisparing, which is one of the procedures I'm a, I'm a kind of big proponent of and one of the UK um, leaders in. Uh, or whether or not they can get nerve sparing surgery, or other things that help uh, not only with the cancer control of the surgery, but also stop the side effects or decrease the side effects of the surgery uh, in terms of problems with erections, problems with incontinence after surgery. So all of that kind of surgical planning I need to discuss with patients before they even decide upon surgery so they have the options. Uh, so I, I will do clinic with those patients and I'll also do clinic for patients that have had the surgery at different time points afterwards to see how they're doing, to see that they're cancer-free, to see how their erections are, to see how their incontinence is, uh, to help with their recovery. So uh, pre-op, post-op clinic intermi intermixed with the, uh, the, the, the surgeries themselves. Yeah. And so what, um, so you're talking about the different types of surgery. So to lead up to um figuring out what those techniques are going to be and the best techniques. Research, um, I believe, plays a, a big role of that. Yeah. And I know that you spend a lot of time doing research. So what kind of proportion of your day does that um, take up? And why is research so important in your Yeah, time? so I get, I get, I still get uh, one programmed activity, which is basically 10% of my working week to do research. So 90% is clinical work and 10% is research. Whereas when I was in Oxford, it was 50-50. It's just, I did a lot of research and I, I brought that right down, but certainly not stopped it. Uh, so I basically spend half a day a week doing research. Um, and it's really important because actually, how else can you make progress? So how else are you going to decide whether this specific surgical technique improves patient outcomes, whether that's cancer control or decreasing side effects, complications, incontinence, erectile dysfunction, et cetera, unless you do research. Um, so I run a, lot, a, a large number of clinical trials looking at the impact of robotic surgery and specific innovations within robotic surgery on patient outcomes. I used to do research um, and my PhD uh, in prostate cancer was all lab-based research, you know, kind of DNA microarrays and pipetting and you know all that kind of stuff uh, and even uh, when I was at Oxford I, I collaborated with you know with some real kind of hardcore science geeks I suppose um, doing more kind of fundamental research to uh, stuff to do with uh, immunotherapies that sort of thing but these days I'm much more focused in using the techniques I use in a day-to-day -day setting with my surgeries um, trying to improve the surgery, tweak the surgery and seeing how 
that impacts on patient outcomes. So I'm all about maximizing the benefit of surgery in terms of cancer control and minimizing the side effects of surgery in terms of negative quality of life. And so my research these days is very much patient-centered and patient-focused towards that. And it goes hand in hand with the surgery because you don't want a surgeon to just do the same thing over and over and over again with no chance of improving. You want that surgeon to think about what they're doing, figure out a better way of doing it, and then figure out if that so-called better way of doing it leads to better outcomes and then continuously improve. Um, and that is what the kind of research I'm interested in doing is. Yeah, I think that's a really important point again about for medical students to understand that research, as they probably think a lot in medical school, is more of a tick box exercise. But in reality, when you get to become a surgeon, it's an incredibly important part of your job and what you do. Um, so for you, is there any part of research that you don't enjoy? Um, in terms of, I know you're passionate about clinical research, but... Um... Yeah, so I, I much prefer clinical, patient-impactful, patient-centred research to the lab-based research because it's much more distant from the patient. Uh, so that's number one. The things I don't like about research, it's not that I don't like, it's just that, like a lot of things, uh, it, comes a lot, it comes with a lot of admin, a lot of governance. So, you know, writing grants themselves, you know, a lot of the time they don't get funded and you have to then repackage them. It's a bit like trying to publish a paper, you know, may not necessarily get in straight away. So, um, you know, it is it is quite a laborious exercise to do some research, but I think, you know, that's why you have to be focused on exactly what you want to do because time is limited. We all have busy lives and so we don't want to be wasting a lot of time doing research that neither interests us nor uh improves what we're trying to do um, so for me i think um you know it is about just getting maximum bang for your buck in the sense of you know if you've got a limited amount of time you want to do the most impactful research that's going to benefit your patients directly and it's really important i think to do research that's going to maximize your clinical output so there's not much point in me doing research in stone disease or in you know bladder cancer when i'm a prostate cancer surgeon i should do research in the patients that i see day in day out yeah and how has covid changed your daily routine um or has it in any way yeah no it did a lot in the first wave and even in the second wave that we're finishing up with um it of course threw a lot of chaos into into the mix uh, we lost a lot of face-to-face -face activity so our numbers of operations had to decrease uh, to uh, and we had to start prioritizing and triaging uh, patients for that uh, so that was a was a negative uh, we also had to develop newer ways of working so just like we are uh, having this podcast uh, virtually we're not meeting uh, we have to do the same thing with patients we still had to start uh, utilizing video consultations telephone consultations far more and only reserve face-to-face -face consultations for the patients that really needed it um, so, that, so we had to, to develop slightly different ways of working. We had to be much more um, responsive and, and work on a much more kind of responsive way so we couldn't just have our fixed timetable. Suddenly lists would open up um, and or patients would be prioritised and we'd have to then be available to operate. You know, sometimes lists would go down because other more urgent cancers would come in from other specialties and we'd lose lists. So then we would end up converting that to a research day. So we'd have to be a little bit more fluid and flexible in how we worked um, 
but we are now coming to the tail end of that and the light is getting ever closer. So, so we are re-establishing some routine. And do you think that um, COVID has had an impact on patient care for patients with prostate cancer, for example? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. And, and I, was, uh, I wrote a comment for Prostate Cancer UK, which recently put out a press release on this, which is that we've seen referrals for prostate cancer drop by about a quarter uh, over the year. Clearly, those men are still out there with prostate cancer. It's just that they're not being diagnosed and therefore not being referred into the hospital. So that will then mean that in time to come, those men will present with more advanced or delayed diagnosed prostate cancer and therefore, uh, you know, will have worse survival. Uh, so that's a, that will be a, a longer term ripple effect of COVID is that all of these other things, um, which are time sensitive, but not emergencies um, will end up leading to delay and will end up therefore causing harm in the future. So that will be a negative ripple effect of COVID for sure. So we're going to talk a bit about putting your patient above your career now. Yeah. So I know that you're a strong advocate for this. Um, What does that mean? Yeah. So I think the reason I, I, I suggested that is that, you know, you're young, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed medical student, and I'm sure most of the people listening to this podcast will be like you, and they'll be very focused on their careers and very focused uh, on, you know, being the best that they can be and getting all of the kind of career ticks of prizes and honours and whatever else. And and I was the same, you know, at that stage. I, you know, graduated with, with honours. I, I went to a that time, at least, it was the most popular, most competitive medical school to get into, et cetera, et cetera. So, and I, you know, throughout my career, I've always tried to publish and, and, and present and, you know, go above and beyond and, and tick all those kind of points on the career. But actually, what I realised when I look back is that the most rewarding aspects of my career and the most, um, the things that have actually helped most on that journey is when I've made those personal connections and have actually been a better doctor holistically towards my patients because that actually is what shines through and when I pick my junior staff and my fellows from abroad and people that want to come and work with me um, of course I look at their CV but their CV is almost like a minimum kind of yardstick so so long as they hit that level like you know to get into medical school that might be three A's or two A stars and an A or whatever it happens to be, they don't need to, once they've hit that minimum target or threshold, I don't need them to be ticking the box five times. So let's say they have, you know, a dozen papers That's and they're in the right field. That's enough. I don't need them to have three dozen or if someone has 50, it's not going to make me more likely to pick them than someone that has 20. So long as they can show they've got the minimum academic uh, threshold, what I then look for are people that are much more patient focused. Um, And so, you know, I think, you know, it is far more beneficial for your development as a doctor and as a surgeon to think about how patients will respond to you um, rather than thinking about, am I going to get another publication out? Am I going to get another, um, you know, presentation? Am I going to get another prize? Um, And I think if you always put your patient first or put the patient at the center of what you do, um, then actually you will never really go very wrong. 
Whereas if you think, well, actually, you know, this is the way I should practice. And if a patient doesn't agree with it or the patient, why is the patient upset? Because this is, I've given him the right information. Then you don't quite get the fact that actually behind what you say, there's a scared human being that may have something seriously wrong with them and won't necessarily be at their best. And actually your job isn't just to convey information or to do the right treatment. Your job is to convey information and do the right treatment and make the patient as happy as they can be. And that last bit is really important. It's not just about delivering care. It's about the way in which you deliver that care. And if you can learn how to deliver that care in the most compassionate and kind way, and the way that is best for patients, then actually you will achieve uh, far more in your career than if you just work on tick box exercises of, I've got this prize, or I went to this medical school, or I've done this and I've done that. So I, yeah, I think that's a really important point because when we look at surgery in general and the stereotypes behind surgery that exist currently, um, it's kind of seen that people who go into surgery aren't that patient orientated yeah. and rather um, people who are more patient orientated go towards more medicine focused um, uh, career pathways that include more ward rounds and things like that. Yes. But when we look at, yeah, when we look at the future of surgery, we want people who are more patient focused. Yeah, I mean, and that's the oxymoron of it all, isn't it? Or is the contradiction of it all? Because actually, if you're going to have a ma- if you have significant cancer, you're going to have a major cancer operation. Then why would you want your doctor to be less able to communicate to you properly than if you are a dermatologist? and you've got a skin rash, or if you're a psychiatrist, or if you're a medical doctor of some description, it's the most bizarre thing, because surgeons are actually cutting into people. So actually, you'd want them to be the most patient-centered doctors out there, not the least, because they're doing the most invasive things to patients, which has potentially harm and, and side effects and you know morbidity associated. So actually, that's exactly right. You want your surgeons to, to be the most patient-centered and not be aloof uh, and not be arrogant and not uh, be, it's all about how great I am at doing this operation, not about how great the patient recovers. I mean, I keep hearing surgeons, or I often hear surgeons say, oh, you know, this operation didn't do so well because the patient was fat or the patient was this or the patient did that. And you almost blame the patient for the outcomes the patient has. Well, actually, your job as a surgeon is to think about how you can do the best for the patient, not about what my outcomes are and, oh, my God, I don't want that patient to ruin my outcomes. It's not about you. It's about the patient. And so long as you realise it's about the patient, then you will never go too far wrong. Whereas if you think it's about you and your career and about how amazing you are, then you are never going to do too well. Yeah, and I think there's also a great level of trust you need to have in surgeons in particular, because if you think about it, you're going to be asleep in an operating room, not knowing what's going on. And if you have a like a doctor that's very patient centered, you're going to have that faith in them that nothing like your your dignity isn't going to be lost in any way through that surgeon treating you. Yeah. And also and also, to be honest, the the learning of surgery, the learning of any um motor skill can be done with repetition and with hard work so you know you can teach pretty much most people to do most operations if they are motivated to do so and if they do it often enough Um, so there's not a huge amount of 
reason to choose between one surgeon or another in terms of technical skill, right? Some people say, oh, this is an amazing surgeon, this is a rubbish surgeon. But the reality is actually most people can do most things reasonably well in order for it to have the right outcome. What actually differentiates people is those human factors and being able to communicate what they've done to the patients, being able to keep the patient at ease when they're going to do something, being able to, you know, if something goes wrong or the patient has complications, rather than washing their hands a bit, being able to step in and actually being more present um, because that, and actually getting the patient through that complication and, and, and how you react when things don't go so well. That is actually a far more useful skill um, uh, and uh, far more beneficial to patients than, you know, your exact technical skills on the minute of surgery or the day of surgery. And then following on from that, so that kind of alludes to the future of doctors in surgery. So a lot of people think um, that once robotic surgery is expanded and um, automated, then the role of the doctor, of the surgeon will be um, just not required anymore. Um, but obviously you need that patient touch and you need like the pre-op and the post-op. Um, but what do you think the future of robotics is in medicine? Yeah, so I think there will be more automation. I think that's fair. At the moment, it's what's called a master-slave platform. So the robot only mimics the hand uh, actions of the surgeon. So basically, it's a bit like uh, playing the PlayStation or something. It's not like when you play the PlayStation, uh, the computer is playing the game, you are playing the game, right? And whatever the character you're controlling is doing, you're doing with the joystick. Uh, the character is not moving on the screen independently. So it's the same thing. The, the robot is not moving independently. It's just mimicking what you are doing. So you are still controlling it. When I play golf, it's not the golf clubs that are playing the golf. I'm playing the golf, right? So it's the same thing. It's just an instrument. It's a very sophisticated instrument, but it's an instrument. But just like people are moving towards driverless cars or more automation in cars, um, people are doing the same thing with surgery. This, they are now starting to develop kind of uh, red lights where the robot will time out. If you try and do something that's considered to be dangerous or unsafe, it'll stop you doing that. Same way that if, you know, if I drive too close to another car, the collision sensors will come on in my car and we'll try and, and we'll put the brakes on or something. So there is more automation coming in. But I don't think we're anywhere near the stage where you can kind of click a button and it will do the whole operation for you. There will just be these kind of safeguards and the surgeon will still control it. But that will therefore absolutely reduce surgeon heterogeneity. It'll get more consistent outcomes in terms of what happens on the day of surgery. But as I've just said, and as you've just nicely uh, stated again, the, the outcome of surgery not depend upon just what you do on that surgery. Yeah, they also depend upon how you counsel the patient both beforehand and afterwards. And side effects are actually not just depend on what you do in the surgery. It's also about the perception of what's happened. So, you know, you might find that actually you have two patients that have exactly the same level of side effects of incontinence, for example, after surgery. Um, but one patient is relatively happy with it. and Another patient is distraught. And it's like the worst thing since sliced bread for them. So it's just awful for them. So, you know, and that is partly based on expectation. So if you're taught to expect a certain level of side effect and you're, and you're supported throughout that, then you can deal with it much better than if you're not. And so it's not just about, as I say, the outcome. It's about how you 
counsel the patient and how you support the patients through their outcomes. And that no amount of automation will ever be able to do. So there will always be, I think, that role for human factors in surgery. There will only get more, as you've rightly said, as technical factors become less important with time when you're uh, when you're double your age now and you're close to my age, then you might you might it might be different, right? And you might not need the same level of technical skills that I have had to go off to New York and Sweden to learn. So you might be able to get away with less. But the other things will therefore expand uh, more. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about manage- managing a work-life balance as a surgeon. Yeah. Um, so obviously this has been relevant from when you graduated med- medical school, um, going and getting your education in different countries, constantly working. Um, what are your kind of coping mechanisms? How do you deal with having such a heavy workload? Yeah, so I think I think work-life balance is really, really important. And it's something I've not really uh, grasped really to the last two, three years, perhaps. So I've not been very good at it, I think, for the first 20, because I graduated medical school at whatever it was, 22, 23, and I'm 44 now. So, yeah, probably for the first close to 20 years of my career as a doctor, I was probably not very good at it. You know, I always prioritised work. I went to do the job I wanted to do. I moved around a lot um yes and it placed you know burdens on relationships with with uh my wife and you know it, it, you know it has impacts on family life and, and things um so i think work life balance is something i've become much better at as i've got older um because before it was more work and less life uh and i think actually having a more healthy attitude towards work life balance is is really important and just cutting yourself some slack and not always having to be the best at everything I think is important it's better to to just sacrifice one aspect of your life to not allow the other aspect of your life to fall completely apart so I think you just need to have balance as you go throughout your career I think you need to reflect that if something doesn't go right at work or at uh, universities, uh, medical school, if somebody gets a higher mark than you, it's really not the end of the world. And, um, you know, you, it's better to, it's better to be like I am now, you know, you know, relatively successful, you know, two healthy kids, healthy relationship uh, with a wife, etc. cetera, uh, than, you know, be some hotshot professor at Harvard who's been divorced three times and has, become an alcoholic so I think you know there are you just need to you just need to have I think some sense of balance and perspective and and it's really easy I think in a competitive environment like uh, UCL or like any medical school or, or surgery to just get really tunnel visioned and think I have to be better than this person to get a better job than this person to then get a better career than this person and actually I think if you just sometimes if you want something too much or you try too hard for something it can be detrimental. Whereas if you have some balance and you can see the wood for the trees and you focus on other aspects of your life and you don't compromise one for the other, um, then actually you'll end up being more rounded overall. Uh, and so I, what I do is I, I play with my children a lot. I play a lot of golf. I will from the 29th of March when the golf course is reopen at least. Uh, and um, I try not to um, do much work at the weekends. I'm not on call I certainly don't write papers and 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 you know I try to compartmentalize my life 
into work and not work. I make sure I don't live close to work. I think that's really important because when I was a junior doctor and throughout registrar, I used to live really close to the hospital and it would always make me feel like I could just pop into the hospital on a Saturday morning, do something quickly, do a bit of research, do this, do that. And I never quite learned how to switch off from work, uh, except, you know, now uh, when, when I have that physical distance and I get in the car or got on a tube and travel for an hour away. And actually, I think that's really healthy to, to have that kind of distance. Remember that. And I think it's also really important to remember that you're not, you're not, um, you're not the only person that can deal with something at work. So, you know, we all like to think we're really super important and, and our work and it's really, really important. And therefore, you know, we have to be the person that deals with it. But actually most of your colleagues can deal with the same stuff. Um, and so you just need to be able to work as a team and support each other such that if somebody has something important to go to like a, you know, a wedding of a friend or something, you can cover them and they don't have to feel like, oh, they have to be available because it's their patient or whatever. Because that, I think, again, starts to impact on people's personal lives. Um, and people deserve a personal life. And it actually, the more happy you are in your personal life, the more happy you'll be in your professional life and vice versa. The two are not, in my view, distinct and separate. And you can't you know, just try and say we can be successful in one and not worry about the other. Yeah. It's it's um, interesting that how important you view having a, a work-life balance. I don't think um, a lot of surgeons are very open about that. Um, but in terms of the early stages of um, the career, like building process, I think a lot of surgeons that I've spoken to anyway have said that they prioritised work completely in those early stages. Is that a requirement to get to say where you are today? Do you need to go through that stage or do you wish that you had like kind of had more of a balance? You know, I wish I had more of a balance because I worked, I worked very hard when I was younger and I, um, you know, didn't necessarily always treat my wife the way I perhaps should have treated her um, in terms of making a travel here, there and everywhere. And uh, it was always about me and my career. Uh, and that's not a good, you know, you know, that's not a good way to be I have a daughter and I certainly wouldn't want her to be treated like that so I think you know you have to recognize that um, you know there has to be a better way um, you know and you know I think I think um, one of the downsides of surgery of my generation is that the vast majority or are pretty it's all pretty much men and that's because they're able to do that whereas actually um, women are not don't have, don't have that option because they have to you know physically have the pregnancy and, and look after the child in, in the in the first few weeks to months. So so you know biology dictates that they can't provide the same level of of intense intense in, intensity to 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 the cause of, of learning surgery if you want to put it like that. So we have to I think develop better structures and more rounded training such that. Um, women and others that go part-time um, or aren't so 100% focused on, you know, just always being at work uh, can also succeed. And I think we have done that very well, um, or are doing that very well, I should say, it's not, it's not complete. And we are getting much more uh, females interested in surgery. We are getting much more balance. We are getting 
far more structure in our training such that you don't have to train by osmosis just by being there. You're actually given training opportunities and people are actually invested in, in, in your training, um, you know, rather than you having to just hang around and just work all the time, hoping that you might get a bit of training here and there, which is what it was like in our day. So I think the processes are much better because there's much more structure, there's much more support uh, for you guys perhaps than there was for us. For us, as I say, it was the person that hung around the most, got the most training. And so if you were there more often, you got more training and therefore you progressed more. And so it was a kind of survival of the fittest mentality. Whereas now it's a kind of, well, we need to look after people. We need to actually train them. We recognise that we need lots of different types of people. They can't all just be posh white men that went to Eton that become surgeons. We need, we need to have a broader reflection of society that get to these, these you know, uh, the, the tops of their careers. Uh, and so we've had to create structures and I think we've done that very well. And the Royal College of Surgeons recently published a diversity re review, uh, which has looked not only at, at ethnic minorities, but also women's opportunities in surgery. And I, I gave evidence to that um, review. And uh, I think there is, it will get better and better and better. And it will be better than you for you than it was for for people for you know my female contemporaries in medical school. It'll be better for my daughter than it will be for you if she decides to last to be a doctor. Yeah, I think that's such a key point. Like the future of surgery is changing, and every nearly every surgeon I ask on this podcast about their work-life balance, and all of them say it is improving. It is possible. And um, I think that's one of the things that puts a lot of people off going into career in surgery is because they see it like that. And knowing that it's changing is really refreshing. Yeah, and I think, I think you know, we all want, we all want to, to see representation, right? So, you know, you won't, you won't really believe that it's changing until you start having these podcasts with multiply successful women in surgery, um, you know. And so that will only happen with time, right? And, you know, if we make the environment better for people like yourself, then you'll end up becoming, you know, a female surgical leader. And then people like my daughter will then go, okay, well, that if Amisha can do that, then I can do that. Whereas if at the moment, all you're seeing is, is men that are successful, then you won't really believe it. So the only way of changing it is by represent changing representation, having more black people, having more Asian people, having more women in the highest positions of these different professions. Yeah. But what do you think about um, people who see like those quotas and saying, OK, we need to get more women into surgery? Um, what do you think about men thinking that uh, institutions prioritising women's places is in turn like sexist towards men? I think that's rubbish, actually. I think this argument against positive discrimination is that well, we just want the best people for the job. Uh, well, if you had if you had a system where the best people got the job, then you'd have equal representation. Because surely you don't believe actually that white people are better than Asian people or black people. So why is it that every person that's been president of the Royal College of Surgeons has been white except for one? Why is it that you know if you look at all the chief execs in the hospital, something like eight percent come from ethnic minorities, you know, and yet forty four percent of the medical workforce comes from ethnic minorities? So surely you either believe that you can't believe surely that white people are just better than other people. You can't believe surely that men are just better than women. So therefore you can't believe that the opportunities are equal. If you give people the equal opportunities, then people will, 
will, will achieve equally. You will get equal representation as you should get it because people would, of merit will be allowed to achieve. So all we're saying is that you have to allow the playing field to be level. There's no point expecting, as Marcus Rashford quite rightly said, someone to win a 100 metres race if you give the white person a, a 50 metre head start. Yeah, most of the time the white person will win the race. You need to give everybody the same starting point, whether they're male, female, black, white, whatever. And what quotas, I don't, I'm not saying quotas are answer, but what positive discrimination is all about is making the playing field level. It's not giving you an unequal advantage. It's just giving you the same opportunity that I already have as a man. Yeah. I think the key is equal, uh, equity over equality yeah. is sometimes the answer. Yeah. Um, so that's all I wanted to ask you about today. It was an absolute pleasure having you on and you made some amazing points that um, will really inspire the next generations, generation of surgeons coming through. Well, thank you so much, Michelle. I had, I had fun. Thank you so much for your time. <laughs>